This is Matt Hayes with Saturday Down South, and I want to tell you about a new podcast we're launching. Saturday Lives Forever is dedicated to the iconic players and moments of college football. Those unforgettable moments where you remember where you were when you watched it. Season one of Saturday Lives Forever is coming soon, but subscribe now and make sure you don't miss an episode. Search for Saturday Lives Forever in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're obsessed like us with college football and can't get enough of reliving fall Saturdays, you're going to love this new show. Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will everyone but the SEC is dead after one week? At least that's what the internet told me. I What an opening weekend it was. I, I wonder though about this, how long ago does Boise State UCF feel like and did you stay for all seven hours? Uh, yes, I did stay for all seven hours. Uh, that was a fun weekend, man. Thankfully, we joked about it in the last pod. They didn't even let us on campus until 3.30. That was the biggest blessing in disguise. Because oh, yeah. we had our game, we had the, 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 the scripted plays going, Connor. I knew exactly where I needed to be, you know, vibes-wise, getting in the stadium. And then we showed up and there was just no announcement. We were just there at seven o'clock. There was no announcement. An entire hour, hour and a half passed and we were just just like guess we'll go to gators or something like like there was no because it we were we were predicting rain but there was no rain so we were just sitting there and it was all people who had been tailgating all day and there was no information so yeah but point being the lead up was kind of anticlimactic but by the time we got in there they weren't even checking tickets so we got like a front row seat to like one of the most incredible games i've seen in person they went down 21 nothing and then the gust bus just roared all the way back which is an experience auburn fans are very familiar with so yeah it was just that was honestly one of my favorite games of the weekend and just it, it's a very big college football is back feeling when you see you know it's 2 a.m boise and you see ever going at it on a thursday you're like oh crap like one of the guys we were tailgating with had to get into work at 7 a.m that next morning oh gosh yeah so like that that's the thing it's like that's college football man that's why we're here i love it that feels like it was in week zero yeah it feels like that long ago and we're gonna get to uh, tennessee and bowling green as well but a full saturday to recap and the most noteworthy results of the weekend in my opinion at least we got to talk georgia clemson oh yeah if you had told me that in the year 2021 that we'd watch a game between top five teams and they would go an entire 60 minutes without an offensive touchdown, I think I would have laughed you out of the room. I would have said, go back to the 1980s. And mm-hmm. then we saw what happened on Saturday night. Georgia sacked, who? DJ Uyangalale, seven times. Felt like 70. Every single time he dropped back, I assumed he was getting sacked. And Kobe Dean shot out of a cannon, living up to all the preseason hype. Jordan Davis completely dominating dudes up front. Adam Anderson, all those all those stats about his pressure numbers and, oh, he just needs to get more reps. And once Aziz Ojolari is gone, he's going to be able to really take off. Yeah, that was confirmed. Nolan Smith had that huge play. That was really the sign for me that this was going to be ugly for Clemson. First quarter, Clemson deep in its own territory. Third and long, Georgia sends a three-man rush. And Nolan Smith, the former five-star recruit, just abuses this poor left tackle for Clemson. Gets the sack, and you kind of realize, oh gosh, if George is getting home with three, yep. just forget about it. And 
I thought like one of the underrated things, you know, they kept showing Trevor Lawrence in the crowd. He's, <laughs> you know, he's hanging out, looking, realizing, oh, this is uh, this is a lot different being in this spot and not being able to to help or do anything. And I, I thought not having Travis Etienne for Clemson was pretty evident. Or DJ Uyunglele didn't have that guy he could just dump it off to. And man, we we talked about with Clemson so much about what that front was gonna be able to do to Georgia. And it felt like we kind of saw the reverse happen on the other side. And to be fair, Clemson's front was really good, really good. I saw that that stat where JT Daniels, 12 of his first 16 passes were for five yards or less. I mean, think about that. It was all dink and dunk. They were not doing anything to try and stretch the field. And Munkin was gonna make sure that JT Daniels was getting rid of the ball, higher percentage throws, don't put him in those tough spots where he can take a big hit or he's relying on his receivers to get separation. Karis Jackson was virtually invisible all night. I think Jermaine Burton had like two catches. I don't think Georgia took really a, a significant downfield shot all night. And I know some people, if you're looking at the glass half empty approach, you're saying, what's wrong with Georgia's offense? This thing that we, we heard about so much. If Georgia was down, like seven to nothing at halftime. Remember what we talked about before the game, Will? Yeah. About how the tweets that was. Yep. Oh, the tweets would have been everywhere. But instead, Georgia go, goes into the half up seven nothing thanks to the Christopher Smith pick six where he just jumps the route. Yeah. And even though you kind of look back and you're like, wait, but Uyunglele didn't get pressured on that play, but he kind of locked in on one read because his his clock was sped up by having to do that. Locks in on one guy, Smith jumps the route, and that's the key play of the game right there, which I would argue still kind of stems from what George was doing up front. So like, yeah, I get it. Georgia offense, done score touchdown. JT Daniels, less than five yards per attempt. The most reliable target in the game for him, shout out to Mike Griffith for this, was True freshman tight end Brock Bowers. I think he nailed that take, by the way. Um, that was spot on. He was the only guy it seemed like he could really get anything going. But I'm not worried about Georgia's offense. Oh, I mean, if, you're, like if you're, I don't think anyone, anyone on the Georgia side, if you beat Clemson, you beat Clemson. It doesn't matter. Exactly. Ask Notre Dame. Like, if you beat Clemson, it doesn't matter how you beat Clemson. I would argue holding them to zero touchdowns is more impressive than anything. That was a Clemson team that had the longest active streak of scoring points in the first half. Yep. 143 games, went all the way back to 2010. That streak is done, that's over. They looked like they did not have the speed to handle Georgia. They did not have those, those offensive linemen who had any idea what to do with when Georgia sent four, when they sent five, when they sent three. It, it did not matter. And I, I think that the Clemson's defense, crazy enough, still could maybe end up being the best defense in the country. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't be totally surprised because I thought they did some things really well up front too, where JT Daniels was getting pressured, but I thought they did a better job of getting rid of the ball in some of those spots. And he wasn't necessarily taking those devastating sacks where it's like third and 16 all of a sudden, you're just like, they get to pin their ears behind him. So for Georgia, I would look at this as a major positive because that offense is gonna get better. It, oh, it absolutely will. And they're not going to see a defense like that moving forward. You look at the rest of the schedule, man. There is nothing like that. And when their receivers get healthy, which I don't know how healthy Kiaris Jackson was, Dominique Blaylock's going to come back, Jermaine Burton, maybe he's going to be a little bit more healthy. And they're actually going to be able to stretch the field. You can get James Cook involved instead of just doing these dump-offs to him. He had four catches for seven yards. I, I, I take that for what it what is. What a Kirby game, man. <laughs> what a Kirby game. In some ways, vintage Kirby. And then in some ways, kind of not though, right? Mm -hmm. Because as we said, Georgia hadn't beat a top five team since the Rose Bowl in 2017, since that Oklahoma game. 
That was the last time. Yep. And on this stage, I was expecting Clemson to be able to make plays downfield. I really was. I was expecting to see Justin Ross have one of these big moments where he bursts back onto the scene, and then we see this ground game get going, and maybe Will Shipley is is breaking off you know, a 40, 50-yard run. And instead, Will Shipley, the five-star Clemson running back, the first time he touched the ball, he, he gets the ball in space, and I can't remember, I think it was Tin, I think it was Channing Tindall who had this pursuit in the open field where it was like, oh, this this guy's never seen anybody that can do what he just did to him to tackle him in space like that. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you. Because that was that was telling. Georgia was everywhere. It looked like Georgia had, I don't know, 17, 18 guys on that defense. And there was nothing that Clemson was gonna do. And they tried some of this misdirection stuff late, and it didn't work. With eight months to prepare for that game, I cannot. I cannot overstate that, how impressive it was that Georgia came out like that defensively. And, you know, I think, like I said, better days are ahead for that offense. Uh, the running game was at least okay. Four yards of carry against that front, pretty good. Zeus dropped a hammer on that run late. That was the only really kind of long run of the day. And I thought Zamir White looked healthy. Zamir White's hitting dudes at the second level like that. That's a good sign. That is a good sign. I. I came away from that, and I'm trying not to get caught up in the moment, and you can tell by the sound of my voice <laughs> that I, I was really impressed because I didn't think Georgia was going to win this game. Right. I didn't think they'd win this game. I didn't think they'd cover. I thought that was the best win of the Kirby Smart era. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little bit... <clears throat> that I think, that's a good, I think that's a good overall take. I think it depends on what Clemson does from here, for sure. Uh, Absolutely. But, but I think, yeah, I mean... And the thing is, man, how about, like... There must not have been too many people feeling better in that stadium as bad as it is than Trevor Lawrence. Because like- Oh yeah, sitting up there watching that. Oh, watching that absolutely. be like, miss me yet? And it's like, yeah, like, you, you know, starting off that game, you know, this Clemson team's gonna be good, like you said, but but this is absolutely perfect for Kirby. You know, you get to jump on this team, show them what you're about, show how physical, and like set this tone for Georgia in a way that they have this quarterback who's played. You know, it's not like he's a new quarterback necessarily, but games like this, there are only a couple of them in your career. Um, and to start off a, a season like that and, and to have Georgia really just never, it's about playing mistake-free football. And yeah, I, I, like you said, I think that this is, uh, this is so perfect for them and so perfect for their brand because at the end of the day, like you look at the Alabama-Georgia game last year, right? And it was like one of these kind of back and forth games, but when the game got broken open, that's what I was talking about as a Kirby game. When the game got broken yeah. open, that's when it started to get away from Georgia. And that's what we kind of worried about in the pregame is these receivers are going to matter. Oh, like it's going to be this back and forth game. But this is the exact kind of game script I think that Georgia wanted. They played their game, you know? And Georgia had the the two mistakes in this game on that punt where you think, all right, maybe when they, it, it hit off, I think it was, what is it, Kendall Milton's uh, toe or something like that on mm-hmm. that punt where Clemson then gets to take over and that's considered a turnover. And Daniels had to throw on the left side where he didn't read the outside linebacker. He thought the outside linebacker was going to stay inside and cover the, the tight end in, in the seam. And instead, he fades to the outside. He drifts there. And Daniels kind of looking over there like, I did not read that right at all. Clemson takes over in plus territory on that. And you're expecting Clemson to be able to, to get significant points on the board, get a touchdown. Maybe that's the key thing that they needed to turn the offense around, get a short field. And instead, it's like, I think they had two consecutive sacks and they pushed them out of field goal range. They're like, wait, what? Like, mm-hmm. Georgia's, Georgia's was on a mission from, from the moment go. And I don't know how much of that is, 
is just because this defense was so prepared and that Clemson offensive line, really probably we didn't talk about enough of the issues that it, that it has had in the last year or two. But I, I tell you what, that was unbelievable to do what they did in Charlotte. Charlotte to Clemson is like what Atlanta is to Alabama. I mean, they dominate there. Yep. They don't get to the ACC championship and lose. Yeah. That, that They get there and they take care of business. It's over from the jump. It doesn't matter if it's a, a Notre Dame team that beat them earlier in the year. They're going to come back and they're going to they're gonna drop the hammer on you. It doesn't matter who you are. And for Georgia to show up like that at a place where Clemson is so unbelievably comfortable, they've done these neutral site things over and over and it's the same prep. And, and to have that much time to prepare, I tip my cap because... I think that's that's a Clemson team that is more talent than 27, 2017 Oklahoma. Yep. And I think what we look at on that Oklahoma side, defensively, we say, well, it was only a matter of time before Georgia was going to be able to score points in that. We came into this game talking about the Clemson star power on offense. Yep. DJ Uyunglele is a Heisman favorite. All right. He's, he's top two, top three. We expected Justin Ross to be one of the, the two, three, four best receivers in all of college football coming back this year. And I'll tell you what, that Georgia secondary was was really good. I think they were helped by the fact that they were able to get so much pressure up front. And if they had been missing assignments or something like that, that would have been magnified. But instead, this Georgia front did exactly what it had to do. And they gave they gave Kirby Smart such an impressive win. And Georgia's elite. There's no doubt about it. If you were waiting to pile on Georgia and say, wow, we're you know, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. We're, we're, we're doing the thing. We're sipping too much of the Georgia Kool-Aid. Let's not talk about the 1980 stuff. <laughs> what did you think by the end of the night? <laughs> I'll, I'll say this real quick. Let me know if this like harpoons your game plan, but watching that game specifically in a couple of games over the weekend, a couple of Big Ten games, especially the Virginia Tech-UNC game, feels like defense is kind of back. Y- you know what? That's a great point. And I think after 2020 where we heard some coaches say you just felt like defenses were on their heels the entire time. That, that, felt, that felt very loud, the opening weekend defense performances that we saw. And seeing a quarterback like Spencer Rattler struggle as well and yep. Sam Howell. I mean, Malik Willis didn't struggle because he's superhuman, but everybody else pretty much. <laughs> not Will Levis either. <laughs> we, yeah, the, not Will the Levis. The cream have really started separating themselves. Yeah, I'll say this though. Like I was always... Um, this was always my take. I was very quiet with it because I, don't, I never want to ruin people's fun, but it feels like last year was kind of wild, man. And I know that offense was always starting to take over. Saban said it. I'm not going to bury my head in the ground like a dodo bird. I, or, Agreed. I like an ostrich. I mean, not dodo bird. Uh, but, you know, offense has always been trending up, but it's almost like last year was so much bad data in that even we talked about it, even Alabama didn't really have a good defense last year. Every team was just wide open, like whipping the ball down the field. And it made it feel like it was impossible to win with defense. It made, it made it feel like there was this seismic shift in college football that if you had this old school kind of like ground and pound team that dominated the front, that didn't make mistakes, that you were just dead in the water. And we saw two, two teams, I still feel like are top five teams, go head to head and play that style of football that, you know, we grew up watching. And I don't want to be too, um, you know, I don't want to be too sentimental about it, but I love seeing that. I, I, you know, a lot of the games last year, we got excited for all these defensive personnel and no one really fit the billing, honestly. And and there were enough of these games where, like I said, you saw Sam Howell struggle. You saw the Clemson quarterback 
DJ Uyangalala. <laughs> He's gonna have to have a couple good games before I need to remember his name. But anyway, yeah, you saw yeah. him struggle. It wasn't a zero. It wasn't like, oh, we're gonna get this player. You know what I'm saying? Like that's what college football is. It's we hype up both sides, and then usually, you know, one side kind of wins. Last year, it was almost like both sides won every game on offense. And it's like, here, it's like, it's good to see teams kind of get blown out. As weird as that sounds, it, it's good to see dominant defense. And it, it's kind of a carryover from what we saw in the Super Bowl. You can be Pat Mahomes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if you're facing pressure like that, you look a lot more human than what you're, you're accustomed to. And if you're gonna run these sets where you're lining up three, four guys out wide, and you're not gonna have those extra, extra protections, that's what we're talking about. And that's the response that we've been waiting to see from some of these defenses. So maybe defenses are back. I don't know who's scoring 21 points against that Georgia defense. Yep. Now, we'll, we'll wait and see how healthy they can stay. Mm -hmm. There's no guarantee that they're going to have the, that full roster of guys in the front seven the entire year. And, and that's such a critical part of this whole deal. But the rest of the schedule... <laughs> Eli Drinkowitz, maybe you're going to get 21. <laughs> Will Levis, you're going to get 21. I don't know. I don't know, man. But if you're yeah. a Georgia fan, and we talked about all the questions, they're all on the offensive side of the ball. You know what I'm saying? It was the receivers. It was the chemistry. It was all this stuff. You know, if you can play this style, and if you only need, like, if 28 points feels safe, if 35 points feels very safe, you're feeling great as a Georgia fan. That's why I'm not super worried about the offense, because this defense doesn't feel like one that can just collapse. You know, like, who knows? A lot of things could go wrong. But like you said, that's the biggest test of their schedule. And if a team was just going to gash them and expose them, this feels like one of those teams that would have done it. You know what I'm saying? And wait until they get Tyke Smith back healthy mm -hmm. and... And, and wait until Georgia wasn't even out really particularly healthy coming into this one. That's yeah. the crazy thing. So excited Georgia. for Georgia fans right now, man. Yeah, Georgia fans enjoy this. Soak it in because that was monumental. And, and everybody knows what could potentially be awaiting. The only other team that looks like it was on Georgia's level opening weekend. Let's talk about them. Alabama-Miami was a bloodbath. <laughs> Goodness. I'm not saying that they should retire the orange Miami jerseys, but... They need to return to the return to retire the turnover chain. To pull that out, <laughs> when it is 27 and nothing, and you don't even know officially if it's going to be a turnover, that was a low for Miami. Having it, you don't, having it rolled out and then putting it back, bro. It was like, I literally tweeted like, this is very sad. And then they put it back. I was like, oh no. <laughs> Let's treat the turnover chain like touchdown celebrations. If you're down by a certain amount, if you're down by more than two scores, just don't don't bust it out. Exactly. And you know what? I'll, I'll give them within 21. If you're within 21 points and you're trying to get some momentum back, you're trying to just feel good, I get it. It felt awkward in that moment, and it was pretty bad. And Alabama dominated from start to finish. Anybody watching that who didn't think to themselves, oh, crap, Alabama looks like 2020 <laughs> all over again, they're just lying. That was bad for the rest of college football. If Bryce Young looks that comfortable already, good night. He might be underpaid at only seven figures. Might need to bump him up to eight figures with some of these <laughs> NIL deals. Certainly seemed like that after watching what he was capable of on Saturday afternoon. Set the Alabama record for touchdown passes in his first career start with four. Jeez. Shifty, kept his eyes downfield. You, you watch some of these, these young signal callers, and even, like, even a Sam Howell, or, or DJ Ewing Ungalale, mm -hmm. guys who have experience, some, Howell and Ungalale are a little bit different in that department, but 
when they they know that they don't have that time and they can't keep their eyes downfield and how much that impacts them bryce young just isn't phased by anything yep he keeps his eyes downfield the entire time he had that first score to mechie where he just kind of casually steps up in the pocket and he he evades the rusher and he gets to his right and then he's thrown on, on the move and he hits mechie and mechie's got you know a pretty relatively easy path to, to six and dives into the end zone but I, I just thought that we saw some of the same exact things that we saw in 2020. Bill oh. O'Brien looked like he was doing Sark all over again. Oh, and the best part of that was that Texas game was on at the same time. So one of the two, mm. two, two of the TVs I had in front of me was Alabama just slinging the rock with Bill O'Brien, like just taking it to Miami. And on the right TV, it's Texas and Sark just struggling with ULL. And it's like, man, maybe this one's Sark. <laughs> well... They they actually one of my locks of the week didn't even didn't even line up because Texas ends up covering in that game. They kind of poured on a little bit late. Well, that was a top twenty five team. No, I know it's just the fact that I mean Bill O'Brien was just a punchline. I mean you're a big NFL guy, like you know that like you could like tweet anything and Bill O'Brien's the, the punchline and it's getting you ten retweets every single time for like a year and yeah. a half because he was just he was like they put this dunce cap on him and he just shows up at Alabama with a new quarterback and just starts slinging it down the field and any hope you know what I'm saying like you said. It's, it's bad news for us to college football because you could tell yourself that story, right? You could say Bill O'Brien's this disgraced coordinator. You know, two is gone. Like the whole like Mac is gone. Everybody, we got a whole new setup. And then you watch that and you're like, this is inevitable. This is Thanos, right? And nobody was just so <laughs> surprised by that. He gets the tight ends involved. Yep. Cameron Latu is is two touchdowns. My guy Billingsley <laughs> on the bench in the doghouse big time i saw some of the images where he's just standing next to saban and talking to him not great the most telling sequence of the game for me and why if you're not believing the bryce young hype you probably should be was this and keep in mind this is against the miami defense who returned a ton of experience yeah it hurt that they lost bubba bolden to, to the targeting penalty but still it's a manny diaz coach defense with eight months to prepare yeah they have experience on that side of the ball. You thought they'd be pretty good. Alabama had just gotten that goal line stop coming out of halftime, where it looks like Miami was finally gonna 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 get its first touchdown of the game. Finally gonna, all right, maybe they got a little bit of life. No, Bama gets the goal line stop. They take over, and Bryce Young is backed up in his own territory. Miami finally gets some pressure, and they force an incompletion. And I thought it was grounding. I thought it should have been a safety on it when I initially watched it because I didn't think he was outside of the tackle box. Manny Diaz agreed with that, also thought it was a safety. Whatever the case, on the very next play, Bama has three receivers and a bunch set on the right, one wide on the left. And Young is throwing out of his own end zone. Again, Miami gets frontside pressure this time. So he's staring at it. He can go any which way. For a kid in his first career start in that moment, I think we kind of forget all the things that can be going on in your mind. Yeah. Instead, again, keeps his eyes downfield. He waits, he waits, he lets the play develop. And don't you know it, there's Jamison Williams. He's got a step. 90-yard touchdown. As easy as that. It's part scheme, and it's part having a quarterback who knows exactly what he needs to do in that spot, and he's not going to get rattled. That element of the Alabama offense is absolutely still there, and that's terrifying terrifying so just on that side of the ball alone all right that's one thing but alabama's front was every bit as dominant as georgia's was yep not the same sort of competition don't think miami is on clemson's level not saying that georgia fans not trying to take anything away but i watched that game and thought if that's the sec championship what a treat that would be oh yeah we knew that alabama's front was going to be awesome 
but I, I, I didn't necessarily think that they would get after it in week one that sort of way. I thought we'd see Will Anderson do some really good things. Christian Harris would get involved, of course, but it was everybody, man. It was Christopher Allen, it was Toe To, both of those guys end up getting banged up in this game. Looks like Allen's gonna be out for a bit. Toe To is probably not gonna be out as long, but I, I, I think that their front might be unblockable too. And I don't know who's gonna be able to to consistently challenge them up front on that schedule. And that includes that includes even a team like AM, who now I'm looking at thinking to myself, I predicted that upset. I, I don't know if they're gonna be able to, to to prevent Haynes King from getting sacked. That front was nasty. You know what's Will, funny that, too? That's like a vintage SEC front. Oh yeah, you know what's funny too is like again, it's the stories we tell themselves like Derek King is like my age, man. Like we always joke about that, like older college players, and it's like this is kind of it for you. Like, this is your game. Like, you've had this whole life to prepare for this game. You need to show up and be a leader. And be, not that it's his fault necessarily, but it's like, you would think that that kind of advantage, you talk about Manny Diaz and the success they've had with recruiting and this whole, like, you know, the U is back. Now, granted, they do the U is back every year for a different reason, but I mean, how about their shots at Ed Reed on the sideline? <laughs> it's just like, oh, like you guys, every off season, sign yourself up for this. Every year goes the same way. And I'm not being mean, but it's like this, you could tell yourself the story of, hey, at least you could, you know, you were getting like, what was it, 14 and a half? Oh, no, it was I think nineteen. it was like 19. Yeah, it was 19. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like, you could at least get within that and be like, okay, we're close, we're a year away. But it wasn't close. It was just, and it's like, for Miami, not that we're a Miami podcast at all, but it's like, where do you go from here? Because Alabama showed up, like we talked about, you know, new coordinators, new talent, lost all these guys in the draft, lost all this leadership. And Miami had all these guys that they've been selling this, you know, this line to, and it's like, it wasn't even close. Like, you gotta, in those moments, kind of dig in, and Alabama just proved, like you said, from the first snap, they were just ready to, ready to ride. That's the difference, and you can totally see. You can see the difference between a good team, which I think Miami still will be. I oh, mean, yeah. The, the rest of the schedule is pretty favorable. You don't get Clemson in the regular season. A UNC team is on the schedule. Yeah, you got dominated by them last year in embarrassing fashion, even more embarrassing probably than what Alabama did. But at the same time, UNC gets the loss in week one against Virginia Tech. So who knows with, with Miami moving forward. But I still looked at that and thought, this Alabama team, what it has done in the last decade plus is – take good teams and make them look like bad group of five teams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's so deflating. I, I can't imagine having to get my hopes up as a fan for a team playing against what Alabama does. And uh, there are very few teams that, that are ever going to be able to stay on the field as them. And that's why, like, we talk about Georgia so much. The fact that Georgia has actually, like, been able to lead for 96 minutes against Alabama, whatever that number is, during the Kirby Smart era. And yeah. how rare that is because... They just put it on you and they don't stop. And even when they bring in their backups and their guys like Trey Sanders, who Trey Sanders gets into the end zone, and it was awesome to see, really happy for him after he's had just a, a very bizarre start to his career with some of the injuries and stuff. And he got into the, the car accident last year and um, cool to kind of see him get into the end zone. He did the um, the reverse Miami down thing too, which- <laughs> Which is not a flag. It's, it's not a flag, apparently. <laughs> Neutral site, you know? Not Big 12 refs, I don't think. I think they were actually SEC refs. I don't know how that happened for a game played in Atlanta. I should ask Gary Stoken about that, but not as good as doing the horns down. Not quite, but I was happy for Trey Sanders to get that moment. And that's the thing with, Miami, with, with Alabama against a team like Miami, is they can put this away and make this look so unbelievably easy. How many teams did you watch over the weekend even, you know, being at the game that you were at with UCF, 
where for so long it just feels so difficult to sustain drives, to get yep. these chunk plays, to put a team away, to feel like a game is truly in the back pocket. It's hard. It is so hard to do that. And this was a good reminder of there are very few teams who can make it look easy. Yeah, you nailed that sequence as far as like the grounding call, like they had them backed up. It was like, okay, like we'll get a semblance of a semblance of something going against Alabama. It's like, oh, 90 yard touchdown. No, you're even more screwed than before. No. Yeah, oh, cool. That, I, that was the exact moment in that game. I was like, can we just put on this Mississippi State game? Because at least it's like, there's nothing from here is going to happen that will be worth watching. I should have listened to Matt Hayes. Matt Hayes told me yesterday, he said before the game, he said, I think it's going to be 2016 against USC all over again for Bama. Oh, I think man. They, they put it on Miami. I'm like, no, nah, you know, Derek King, Derek King's the best quarterback that Saban's faced in an opener. I think he'll actually be able to do some things. Nuh-uh. Nope, that, that did not happen. That's what I Bama, love about college football, man. It's like some things change, a lot of things stay the same. That's why it's such a great, like, nostalgic sport is just like, again, vintage Georgia game, vintage Alabama game. There's lots of other coaches, not to do all that right now, but it's just like you see that and you go, you know, I feel home right now. <laughs> There's something, there's something very normal about that after all the weirdness that's been the last year. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah, I agree. If you don't think that the two best teams in the country are Georgia and Alabama in whatever order you want, I don't really care. You can pick whatever. You're probably anti-SEC <laughs> and you probably have some biases that you need to work through because after watching the way Oklahoma struggled and that defense did not look very good against Tulane. The best, best team in the forms. state of Louisiana, the Tulane Greenway. Probably. Um, <laughs> Louisiana Tech threatened for that. You know what? Unless <laughs> you're competing for third place right now, it's stiff. Kind of. Uh, after, so you, you watch Oklahoma, you watch Clemson not score an offensive touchdown, you watch Ohio State kind of struggle on the road against Minnesota. CJ Stroud made a lot of really questionable throws. No doubt, no doubt whatsoever that Alabama and Georgia are the two best teams in college football. So let me ask and you about Ohio State real quick, because like I obviously I don't watch you know, a ton of Big Ten games. Do you, is Minnesota going to be any good? Is that like a, a first game jitters thing? And that goes back to our conversation about Alabama and how different they are. But, you know, how much do you take away from that Ohio State game? Because they would be the other the other team right now, right? Minnesota's a 7-5 and five team. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, never mind. <laughs> I think they're a 7-5 team. It, especially if they're, if they're without Ibrahim for for a considerable amount of time, that, that changes them too. Like him him at full strength is, is different. One of the be better running backs in off college football, but suffering that injury looked looked devastating. I, Ohio State struggled with Minnesota's defense, which was the troubling thing. Yeah. They're, they're gonna face much better competition than that moving forward if they wanna get to where they wanna go. Against Penn State, that was one of the upsets I predicted in the preseason was that Penn State was gonna beat Ohio State. And that was gonna be one of the reasons that Ohio State got that second loss and mm -hmm. didn't get to the playoff. Penn State's defense looked like it could compete. And I know it was at Camp Randall, and so we watched the Wisconsin-Penn State game, and we say, these offenses suck, it's the worst. And then we watch Clemson and Georgia, and we say, look at all this speed, it's incredible. It's, it's perspective. And I also think there's something about playing at night that makes you look oh, yeah. faster. Oh, yeah. I'm going to squat on that. 100%. Yeah. You look way faster. And the SEC does such a great job with that because they play these primetime games. And don't get it twisted. Like Clemson, Clemson and Georgia are absolutely faster and more athletic than what we saw from Wisconsin and Penn State. I'm yeah. not, not saying that. But it's perspective does kind of shift that where we talk about the offenses and some of the issues. And clearly, like a team like Penn State has, has one of the better defenses in all of college football. And I think they'll be able to sustain that. So, Will. <laughs> Here we go. We're getting to it. You knew we were going to get to it. LSU and UCLA. 
I, I feel bad asking this. And this was the this was the one thing I didn't want to come back to you and ask as an LSU, as you being an LSU fan on Sunday. Does it feel like 2020 all over again? Because it did for me. Um, so I'll say this. I am very, you know, we had that conversation about, you know, giving coaches time and everything and then Bowden and not that, not that coach O's on that level. I'd say a couple of things. Now these aren't excuses because I will rip into LSU later on. Trust me, it's coming. It's, it's been happening. I was up to like 2 a.m. last night just sitting there thinking about how bad LSU is. I promise you this is not where it's going. I just sat there and thought, really thought about position by position, why we're so bad. But uh, I'd say this, that hurricane, man, I, you know, I hate to be this guy, but getting, flying across the country with all the stuff that's happening in Louisiana right now, and Coach O is kind of a nightmare coach for that because he's so connected to Louisiana and he's so emotional and he's not like a, like a Nick Saban, even like a Les Miles who was just like, I was just here. Like, there's no, there's nothing to this. Uh, he kind of is a little bit too mercurial when it comes to stuff like that. So I think on one hand is that LSU obviously had their whole schedule disrupted, had to move. And obviously it was an away game to start off with. It's not like it started off in Baton Rouge like the Mizzou game. But we saw that last year in the Mizzou game. They looked awful against Mizzou and it was just, it's messed up everything. UCLA having an extra game um, and it was a cupcake game to get everything figured out. I think those two things accounted for maybe about, you know, 10, 13 points. I think they were a better team than LSU. I don't think that's why they won. Uh, but I think that, you know, you look at that blown coverage on the on the play action that's just like, you guys, terrible. yeah, like that's something that you should probably figure out in week one. So I'll say that. I, I think that we need to get into this SEC schedule before I'm able to evaluate LSU. On the same token, I totally understand why people are mad. Um, we've said a lot about Les Miles on this podcast, and off the field, he's obviously a very questionable, not great person. On the field, we really did take for granted that, I mean, he didn't lose an out-of-conference regular season game for like 10 years. Games like this were just walkovers until we got to Wisconsin and Lambeau, which has been brought up a lot. Um, so yeah, I, uh, that's my answer. I think, I think we need some time. I'm not ready to hold this about Coach o, over Coach o after thinking about it, but boy, did that look bad. Two things can be true at the same time. UCLA could have, could end up having like a top 20, top 30 offense this year, and I don't think it'd be particularly surprising. They did some things really well with Dorian Thompson Robinson, Zach Charbonnet, the Michigan transfer. Mm -hmm. And it kind of made me realize, yes, all of those things that we were talking about coming into last week, Chip Kelly really likes his team. This is kind of different in year four. He feels like he really has a chance to be able to build the roster that he wanted after he had a rebuild there. I, I, I was very impressed by that. And seeing the way that they were able to dominate the line of scrimmage as well where Charbonnet had some of these running lanes yep. where you're just like, he, he's, getting, he's getting 20 even if he, if he wants to, to moonwalk to that spot. Like th there was no way that LSU was getting that push up front. That's the troubling thing. Oh, yeah. So two things can be true at the same time. UCLA could end up having one of the better offenses in off-college football, and you could still be very concerned about what you saw from LSU because there were guys running open downfield. Oh, yeah. There was bad open field tackling. And if you didn't know any better, if you just put that game in the middle of like some 2020 montage, which I don't know why you would do that if you're an LSU fan, <laughs> because that just seems like a sick joke. But if you just threw that game in the middle of last season, you really wouldn't know that it was any different. And that's, that's part of the problem. I thought Durante Jones and the things that he was gonna to bring to the table in the secondary was gonna be evident from the jump. Yep. And that's not to say that Eli Ricks and Derek Stingley had necessarily like terrible games. Eli Ricks had, a ridiculous interception 
that just kind of shows you how talented he is and the ball skills are off the charts. Derek Stingley had that TFL where you're like, okay, maybe he's back, he's healthy, he's looking good. And I still came away from it thinking, this is a defense that struggles so much when they can't force turnovers. If they don't do that, forget about it. That's a problem. So, and like, you know, I can get a mile deep in LSU, but LSU's defense, I saw a tweet, like LSU's defense is hilarious because their D-line is good. Their linebackers are horrible. Their corners are good. Their safeties are horrible. So you have an issue with, and I was explaining this to Brittany, it's like Chip Kelly doesn't even really come from a coaching tree. He's like a dude who just draws stuff up on his hand. So if you're- like his own tree. Yeah. So like if defenses can't communicate and you're seeing people like, you have a three man line and dudes are like running up and down the field and you're just like, I, no one's ever seen this before. He made this up in the bathroom before the game. Like, <laughs> like if you have this offense, I'm not making excuses and I'll say this, like, <laughs> there are two units on LSU that I'm legitimately worried about. Their offensive line is horrible. Horrible. Like they still can't run the ball. Horrible. They, still, they don't want to run the ball either. Oh That's yes. And so and so we'll we'll just uh, I got a little like stream of consciousness in there. So so stick, stick with me. So we talked about this. LSU had the worst offensive line I've seen last year, and they brought all of them back and tried to sell that as a good thing. These guys aren't good. And even though Brad Davis I think is a good coach, LSU had a terrible line coach in Clegg for like three or four seasons. And even the 2019 team was like the most sacked team in America. And if you think about it, you got like four dudes on the line who are draft picks. Joe Burrow obviously is unsackable. And that line was still bad. They got that award from Cole Kublik and everyone acted like we had this great line, but we're in the worst stretch of LSU line play ever. So like, that's why the offense struggled. Max Johnson, obviously, we talked about quarterbacks that are coming into like early starts and stuff. He's just not a great, he's not really a good quarterback. But if you compound the fact that they can't run the ball, that these UCLA guys, I mean, are getting to him quickly. I'll say this, the one positive I take away from the offense, and we can do the defense, the one positive I take away from the offense is that, guys, I like our offensive scheme, okay? It did look similar to 2019. Now the difference is in 2019, you had Joe Burrow. So Joe Burrow could instantly make a good read and get the ball out when there was pressure in his face. Max Johnson would throw the ball backwards out of his butthole. Yeah, that that play. I still, I watched that replay like three times and I thought to myself, how did he do that? What, what a, there, there's nothing that you could ever prepare yourself to, to try and practice that throw, but he reads pressure in a different way. And I, I think he still hangs in there and, and, and reads coverages really well. And I thought the connection with Keishan Vute, like that's still there. I mean, oh, so you're still gonna have that. They're still gonna be able to put up points. I, I don't doubt that but they seem like a relatively one-dimensional team right now. And that's, that's what they were supposed to be getting away from. You're right, they sold us on, on, a, on a ground game that was going to be better because normal offseason for this offensive line, a little bit more continuity. And I, I think they were rotating guys throughout the night too. And they didn't necessarily even settle on one specific offensive line. That, that was a, a really troubling start if you were trying to show that 2020 was all in the past. And if you're yep. trying to say that we are a contender in the West and we're gonna be more like a legit, steady, everything you know about LSU type of program with such a high floor, that wasn't it. And they had moments where I, I could look into the crystal ball and I could see, oh crap, what's gonna happen against Mississippi State when they line up five <laughs> wide. Buddy, and we've seen these it. Miscommunications. <laughs> we've seen it, we've seen it. But what's gonna happen with some of these other teams because that, that's not going away anytime soon. And it's, it's a little bit different. It wasn't just like one missed tackle here, one missed tackle there or anything like that. It was just such a, 
a deflating opening weekend performance when I, I thought LSU was going to show up backs against the wall. Yep. I thought Ed O'Geron, when I saw that video come out before the game, <laughs> yep. he says, bring your ass on, you little, bring your ass on in your the little sissy blue, sissy shirt. blue shirt. Not sure what the UCLA fan said. I couldn't make that out. Could you hear? What, it it sounded like, like Toby Flinderson talking crap. It was very funny. He was like, hey, listen here, Coach O. Like, it was just, anyway. Yeah, it was a weird <laughs> voice. It was a very weird voice. I don't know what, what exactly was going on, but not the best look. You can't yep. call those colors sissy. I'd argue UCLA's got pretty pretty sick here. Oh, yeah. But whatever. That's neither here nor there. You can't call them sissy and then get whipped in the trenches like that. And that's what your team did. Yep. And it, it wasn't it wasn't like a 2018 performance. It wasn't like a 2019 performance. It was very reminiscent of 2020. Not great. That hot seat conversation. Oh, yeah. Not going anywhere. Yeah. Going and, anywhere. and like I said, like the... It's so wild because of like, you can see it's exactly like, I hate to say it's a lot like last year because you can see these guys in the deep. It's like, you can be right and wrong at the same time. And I hate stuff like that, where it's like the defensive line, I still think that this moment looked good. The problem is that Chip Kelly was smart enough to realize that and take those guys totally out of the game. Every yeah, decision that a linebacker made in that game was wrong. Every decision, every decision. Yeah. You look at Patrick Queen started off with like, he had a tweet that was like, linebackers only made one bad read so far, deleted it, was like these linebackers are terrible. Yeah, every, every crossing route, they're going to run these shallow crosses, yep. and it seems like they can't stay with them in coverage. you got to get back to the drawing board because yep. it's, it, there's going to be plenty of SEC teams that can do, I think, some of the things that UCLA did that yep. would not, not be good. And I'll say this real quick, and then we'll, we'll get on. I was, I, was, I was talking to Brittany about this. She was like, oh, these guys are young. It's like, that's the problem. The guys that are leading this team right now, now you look at Max Johnson. I mean, Boutte is certainly not the problem. There are a couple of young guys. The onus on this team is these linebackers are old. This offensive line is old. These are guys that have been in this system, that have won national championships, that have been recruited, I mean, at the beginning by Coach O, some of these guys. Austin Deculus is, again, my age. And it's like, you have to have some more pride. You have to have more leadership. Because if you look as you're an LSU fan, this class coming in is gonna be nasty. They have Walker Howard, they have help coming. But if this team falls apart, all that goes away. So it's gonna it's gonna be on this class at LSU that got kind of, I hate to say it, carried by Joe Burrow and by this great leadership and these guys that are in the NFL playing on Sundays and the guys that are still here, for whatever reason, you know what I'm saying, are still here. So they gotta own that. And it's on, it's on the coaching staff and it's on these players because the young guys are playing phenomenal. <laughs> it's not their fault. That, that's all I got on LSU. Let's do, uh, let's do one thing I liked. We're going to go through these other games a little bit quicker. Um, and we'll start. We'll just kind of go back in order the way that all of these played out. Bowling Green, Tennessee. Again, a game that happened a lifetime ago, Thursday night. Um, the thing that, that I liked, Tennessee didn't really look particularly good, yet it still won by 32. Yep. Pretty underwhelming showing, I thought, especially after the start where you get two quick scoring drives, lightning quick, Joe Milton looks crisp. You see the difference. It looks more fun. Josh Heupel's got his got his, his handprint on this team. Mm -hmm. But pretty much everything after that was pretty meh. And I, like, I understand Josh Heupel, he's not gonna empty the bag. There were probably four to five deep shots and with the exception of the Hail Mary that Joe Milton had in the fourth quarter, uh, he missed all of them. And there was not those big downfield shots that we were sort of expecting. What concerned me was that pass, that Hail Mary, that was his only completion in the second half. Against Excuse Bolger. me? That was it. <laughs> in, that, in that matchup, I don't, I don't care if you're running the ball more, which Tennessee was, 
man, that can't happen. You need to be able to get some of those higher percentage throws. And, and he really struggled with those. And Heupel pretty much said the passing game isn't ready. And I thought that's why they went to the ground game so much in the second half, obviously, with Jabari Small. And, you know, they just wanted to control the clock. Bowling Green's not playing for a MAC title this year. I think we can all say that. I felt so bad for their true freshman walk-on center. That kid did not have a chance. It was really ugly. But the good news, despite the fact that I still have those concerns over Joe Milton, it's going to be really telling what he does against Pat Narduzzi week two against a pit defense that you know is going to have something up its sleeve. Mm -hmm. I, I still came away from that thinking it's good that Tennessee didn't have to sweat out a win. And in a weird way, maybe Tennessee's expectations are lowered a bit as opposed to having a game similar to Auburn-Akron. Now, I think Auburn fans have their expectations a little bit tempered because they've seen the Bo Nix story before, whereas with Tennessee, everything on offense was new. So expectations should be in line moving forward because there is a lot of room for improvement. And I don't entirely know that Joe Milton is going to be the guy moving forward, but at least... He was able to get into the end zone a few times. You see some of the running abilities. I think it's going to be a little bit tougher for him to kind of get some of those big chunk runs against better competition in the SEC, but it could have been much worse. Could have been much, much worse for the new starting quarterback, the former Michigan transfer. Louisiana Monroe, Kentucky. Wait, did he, he didn't hit 300 yards, right? Couldn't, couldn't, oh, come, no, close. No, couldn't no. come close. No. I was about to say. Did yeah. not come close. Not even close, yeah. Guy who did hit 300 yards. Oh, yeah. Will Levis. Yes, sir. Will Levis in the passing game. It absolutely passed the eye test in game one with Liam Cohen. By halftime, Will Levis had more passing yards than any Kentucky quarterback in all of 2020. That is the first 300-yard passing game by a Kentucky quarterback since 2016. Then, of course, we got the Alyssa Lang eating the banana with the peel <laughs> on the sideline. She made the deal, 300 passing yards, she'll do it. Stoops said 400 passing yards, and he would do it. He was going to make sure that was not going to happen. I think he ended up with like 367 or something like that. Most passing yard by Kentucky quarterback since 2014. First time that Kentucky had two receivers with 100 yard receiving in a game since 2011. And they had that by halftime. I know, Luis Monroe sucks. Really good, for, really, uh, really good favorable matchup for Kentucky. But you know what doesn't suck is Wandell Robinson. Oh yeah, this offense, like Tennessee's, is going to be just a lot better to watch overall, regardless of the competition in Week One. I still think that we can hold on to that. Kentucky had one passing play of 50 yards in the last two seasons. They had three on Saturday. Oh yeah, this is different. This is very, very different. I still think that there are some times that await. It really does feel like it's all Wandell, Josh Lee. I kind of, I have a tough time seeing some of these other receivers really break through and be that consistent target for Will Levis. And when Josh Ali bobbled that first pass that Will Levis attempted, and it went the and it was and it was an interception, I thought to myself, this is going to take a bit of time. But the difference, and all you need to know about the Kentucky offense if you didn't watch this game or you know you just want to be able to keep tabs on them. At 12:20, I stepped into my office to do uh, Matt Hayes' radio show that he does in Jacksonville on Saturdays, and it was seven to nothing Louisiana Monroe when I went in there, and I came out of the office maybe 13 minutes later, and Kentucky was up 14 to seven with two monster plays in the passing game already. It can happen that quickly, and Kentucky isn't going to put so much pressure on these long, sustained drives. They have the home run play, and that's fun to watch. Rice in Arkansas. Okay, so the thing I liked. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear it. 
It felt like the Chad Morris era for three quarters and then not. Okay. If you had questions about Sam Pittman early on in that game and you felt a little too deja vu-esque, I, I don't blame you. But that, to me, that fourth quarter and that response down the stretch was the difference between Sam Pittman and Chad Morris. You fall behind 17-7 to midway through the third quarter, and K.J. Jefferson looked terrible throwing. Let's call it what it is. The drops didn't help, but I, I thought he was one bad series from getting benched in that game. And then the ground game takes over, and you see, all right, this, this does kind of look like a Sam Pittman offensive line. Traylon Smith was excellent. Jefferson was as a runner too. And I know we kind of talked that down last week and we said he's more of a big Ben type. He's not going to scramble and get those big chunk plays in the ground game. Oh, he Lord, did. he coming. <laughs> it's a big man running through. He had one that was called back on a holding too, another long touchdown run. But uh, he looked good in that area. And I like the fact that he competed and he was willing to, as a captain of the team, kind of take some onus of that and not necessarily let Arkansas get into the fourth quarter in that tough spot and sort of willed them back in some of those key moments. And Arkansas, the Arkansas defense really showed up down the stretch as well after losing Grant Morgan to another BS targeting call early in that game. <laughs> of course, it's not a game unless Arkansas gets a ridiculous targeting call or something just totally egregious to go against them. But they showed up late. Oh, yeah, Bumper Pool also ejected for targeting in that game. I'm going to miss the first half against Texas. Of course, because why wouldn't he? Jalen Catalan, Listen, though. When you, when you, when you got to over-officiate a game against Rice, you just got to do it. When you have the opportunity to really just make sure Arkansas doesn't get that one little edge against the Rice Owls. That's absurd. And then some of these that look like obvious targeting calls, they don't get called on the field, and then they're about to run a play, and then they're like, oh, no, 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 we got we to gotta slow it down and take another look at it. Real Nobody quick, let me ruin targets. this young man's life for a second. <laughs> yeah. People call him dirty on Twitter. We're going to give him 10 replays and hit this guy. Hey, uh, what do you guys have coming up next week? I'm going to make sure he's suspended for the first half of that. We'll just we'll, we'll take care of that. <laughs> Thanks a lot, uh, officials. Really appreciate that. But the Arkansas defense was good down the stretch. Jalen Catalan is, is he's awesome. Two interceptions for him. But it did get a little tense there. And Sam Pittman said at halftime he was embarrassed for his team. Funny that we said going into this one that Arkansas fans deserved a laugher. And then they go out and they fall behind by two scores in the second half of this one. I am worried about the passing game. And that's a major issue going forward. I'm not worried about KJ Jefferson and his competitiveness. I thought that was a great sign. And I thought the defense stepped up when it had to, just as you would hope a Barry Odom coach defense to do so. This was a game we had to find an answer because wrong call or not on Grant Morgan. Um, what would 0-1 with a loss to Rice have said? With a tough matchup coming up against Texas, obviously, and you're going to be an underdog against that. Maybe a lot of people would have been wondering in Fayetteville after eight months of feeling like you're about to take this year two step with Sam Pittman. Instead, it's, did we get ahead of ourselves? Are we destined to fail again? They avoid that. Good for Arkansas. Speaking of teams who avoided potential embarrassment and had significant <laughs> second half uh, deficits to overcome, Louisiana Tech and Mississippi State, obviously the thing that I liked about that was the comeback. Will, we were texting when that lead hit 20. <laughs> yeah. That's the Louisiana Tech lead, of course. And we were, I, I don't know, I don't want to speak for you. I was in disbelief. Oh, yeah watching it. Talk about LSU looking like 2020 all over again. Mississippi State looked like 2020 all over again. It blew me away that they were still so bad up front. We, we heard about the experience. We heard about how this personnel was going to be better suited for the air raid. And they still, at moments of that game, couldn't block a three-man rush. 
And why are there never any big open throwing windows for Will Rogers? That's not good. Part of that scheme, part of that is probably the fact that the defensive coordinator just knows what you're doing, right? I can't put that all on the receivers for not being able to get separation if they're going against this, you know, drop seven, drop eight in coverage every single time. I, I don't know. There's just only so much space available. But then it all flipped. And I don't know if I've ever seen a fourth quarter flip so drastically. I shouldn't say never. I shouldn't say never because AM UCLA 2017 was the Jeez. ultimate. Where you just knew that entire time as you're watching the comeback. You're like, oh, UCLA's down 21 in the fourth quarter and they're going to win this game. And there was never any doubt. And I kind of started to feel that way with Mississippi State, even when they were down 14. It was like, oh, they're, they're definitely going to come back and win this game because for whatever reason, Louisiana Tech just stopped being able to hold Mississippi State offensively. And they, they whatever answers that they had in the first three quarters were, were gone in the fourth. But I thought a, a massive key of that comeback Jameer Calvin, Makai Polk, the two transfer receivers from the Pac-12, having some veterans, having some guys who could move the chains late and prevent Mississippi State from getting in those, those spots where it's third and 15 and you know that they just don't have any chance, any prayer of converting, they avoided that. And Leach avoids disaster. Well, we talked about what it could look like if Leach, if all the wheels fall off in Starkville. Mm -hmm. what that would look like with the way that his contract is set up where he's got he's under contract through 2023 that schedule is only getting tougher and the non-conference schedule is really tricky you still have memphis coming up you've got nc state coming up that is that that is a a very we dodged a massive bullet with that that kick at the end was weird too i Oh, Siri. I don't know why Siri's talking to me right now. <laughs> Connor versus that. technology, the biggest rivalry in the SEC. Uh, <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this really quick before I forget. Do you think that fourth quarter is buildable? Or do you think that's random? Do you think that something's like, okay, we got it. Like we, we figured out what works for us. We had three to knock it off. Because that, that's how it felt with Arkansas it, to me. like It felt like Arkansas okay. was like, okay, I get it. Do you feel like Mississippi State figured it out? Or do you feel like that was more of like, a, we're Mississippi State. We should probably just win this. You know what I'm saying? Well, the... Okay, so th there's there's two answers to that because defensively, you're going to see much much tougher competition. And I thought oh, Zach Arnett's yeah. defense had some very tough moments in that game where you're like, you shouldn't be allowing a long touchdown run to Austin Kendall. That shouldn't happen to you. You're supposed to be better than that. But I think offensively, they did find a little bit of their mojo. They played with more tempo. They got the running game involved a little bit more, which Aquavius Marks, he needs to be more involved. He's too good of a player to, get, to only have his touches be these little three-yard checkdowns where mm -hmm. he has to break a tackle somehow, and that's, that's the only space that he gets. I've always they wondered, have, what does Mike Leach tell running backs? Because every single word, it's like, yeah, so you're going to just stand there, sit there, and just get the crap knocked out of you for a three-yard game. So, like, he, he'll line him up wide. It's not that he wasn't willing to do that. Yeah. He'll line him up wide, but how much they're able to actually go downfield. Right. That seems like a different story. Like the route tree doesn't seem that diverse really. And maybe defenses will continue to catch on to that. Maybe this was just a sign of things to come with what we saw in the first three quarters. Cause it was ugly. And that place was starting to clear out. I don't necessarily blame Mississippi State fans for being frustrated and feeling like this is the same crap all over again. And if you're paying $5 million a year for a coach, a guy who's considered one of the best offensive minds not just currently, but of all the 21st century in college football, how do you have eight months to prepare and come out like that? 
Well, listen, hey, Louisiana Tech. You can only you can only hire people for four uh, four years in the state of Mississippi. So they kept the CVS receipt on my cleat at least. That's that receipt is long. Why are CVS receipts so long? I'm gonna keep. Bring, I'm sorry. I'm so fascinated, but I'm just gonna keep bringing that up every time Mike Leach struggles. Cause like, hey, listen, the Mississippi official government has thought about this exact situation. They got you. Don't worry. Yeah, I'm still worried about. <laughs> I'm still really worried about the Mississippi State offensive line. Oh yeah, they're not fooling anyone. And and again, some of these better fronts. Oof, I I do not want to think about what it's going to look like against Bama again. It's it's going to be really really ugly if they don't figure out some of those issues. Because I like to pretend Bama doesn't play any games other than the ones I watch them play. I like to not look into the future. Just imagine them mauling teams for this reason because it's easy to get very sad very quickly. <laughs> yeah, Mississippi State definitely has some issues to figure out. That was not a, a clean game, but a very impressive win and showed some fight down the stretch and maybe some fight that they wouldn't have showed last year. Mm-hmm. Central Michigan and Mizzou. One, ga- one thing I liked about this one, Blaze Aldridge, that dude is the truth. Tyler Beatty is as well. Um, but let me shout out uh, my guy Blaze, who I-, I talked about in the offseason, the Rice transfer, about why he was going to be so important in replacing Nick Bolton, why that was a savvy move by Eli Drinkwitz to bring him in to, to patrol the middle of that defense because they have him rushing the passer as well. And that was the thing I didn't think we'd see as much of in the opener. I thought he was going to be trying to cover a lot more ground. Dude did three and a half sacks in this one and was everywhere. Drinkwood said after that, if you're going to have hair like that, you have the long flowing locks, you better be a good football player. He's a darn good football player. Not just because he's got a great football name, Blaze Aldridge. His dad's name is Zen, interestingly enough. So that's, that's something. But he was great. And there was one time where the Central Michigan um, offensive line just did not account for him on a blitz up the middle, and he went untouched. And their quarterback just got laid out. I mean, this this guy dropped the hammer on him. And he's kind of built a little bit more like a safety. I don't think it's fair to say that he's Nick Bolton 2.0 or anything <laughs> like that. But if you're talking about the, the biggest piece to replace, you can make the case that there was no tougher person to replace in the entire SEC than Nick Bolton. There's there's a legit argument to, for that, for what he meant to that Mizzou defense last year. I thought Blaze Aldridge looked the part. And I, I still worry about this defense this year, but if there is any path for Mizzou to get to eight wins, it involves Blaze being an all-SEC type of guy. Um, also of note, we recorded before the Jim McElwain news came out about his appendicitis. Did not mean to make as many Return to the Mac references um, in talking about that. Did not know um, that his health was going to be an issue, that he wasn't going to be coaching in that game. Uh, appendicitis is bad, don't get, don't get it twisted, but also um, recording a podcast and then finding out that something you said is, is wrong within two seconds of being finished. Not great either. Um, so yeah, I hope Mac makes a full and, and healthy return. It was a bummer not getting to see them, see his, him out there though. His team played their butts off, man. Too that they played well. I I saw, I saw a lot that I liked out of Central Michigan, so I'm very interested to be passively watching the Jim McElwain experience out there. It, it seems you know rooting for big things for him. Yeah, that's why we're saying it was a testament to him that he was only a 14 point underdog. Oh on yeah, the road against a Mizzou team that held its own last year as well. And Mizzou, I think has definitely had some issues moving forward and they're going to have to find some answers that aren't just Tyler Beatty. But good news, Blaze Aldridge, legit. Very much legit. Akron Auburn. The thing I liked, Boy, it wasn't howdy. the Tank Bigsby show. This game, Akron, you said, was sorry? Yes, they are. <laughs> Locker of the week, Akron, sorry. sorry. <laughs> yeah. 
Tank was still really good in this game. He had the one run where he started pumping his fist at the 20-yard line. <laughs> he, had dudes, he had a guy to his right that was basically um, like on, technically like the same distance away from him, but he's like, I'm running past you right now and I'm just gonna start pumping my fist. I already know that, I, that I've scored a touchdown here. I liked the fact that Bo Nix was as precise as he was, 20 of 22 against an Akron defense that we know wasn't going to put up much of a fight. We talked about how bad it would have been for Auburn if Bo Nix came out and didn't look like he knew how to, how to, how to read any coverages in this offense, and it looked like a struggle with Mike Bobo, and it did not. He looked very, very comfortable. They got him some good high percentage looks as well. They weren't exactly airing it out all over the place, but they did what you would hope they would do. They got Sean Shivers involved. He did what he does best, which is just dominate dudes and, and threaten to take their helmets off. That one hit where he was going into the end zone, that looked vicious. That guy should probably get a concussion test based on the, the severity of that hit alone. Um, and then Jarquez Hunter came in in the second half. He hits the century mark in replacement of Bigsby. You didn't need 25 carries from Tank Bigsby. You know what? You shouldn't. Yeah. You really shouldn't in a game like that. Akron, not good. But think about what we'd be talking about if they had won that game 28-7. to Or if this had felt like what K.J. Jefferson did in his opener against Rice. If we're talking about that for Bo Nix, we'd, we'd be selling even more Auburn stock. Instead... Nothing about that game made you say they're going to have more problems than what I initially envisioned. If anything, I'm kind of like, all right, you know what? Maybe maybe they will be able to hold their own. I still think that that test up in, up in Happy Valley is going to be so daunting with the way that Penn State defense flies around. But that's the good news. You avoided that. And you shouldn't take 60-point performances for granted. That's, that's what I always say. Oh, yeah. Bo Nix, I mean, 20 of 22 is phenomenal. You know, and, yeah, and you'll take that. I mean, honestly, like this isn't me being like mean or funny, but it's like there were times where ben, Bo Nix looked like he couldn't go twenty of twenty two against a wide open field. Under no, I agree. Like you know what I'm saying? So like I, you love to see that. Like we talked about, it's like what's the margin that you feel good about? This is one of those games you do feel feeling good, especially like you said, like looking forward to the upcoming matchup. It's like um, something interesting, right? Is like how Gus managed running backs, and I, I think that the Tank Bigsby thing is a, a very good. Exactly what you said. It's like you don't want to run your running backs into the ground. And weirdly, we actually saw that at UCF because that dude had like thirty carries. I was like, well, this is this is twenty twenty one, man. People have rights. You can't just do that. <laughs> but point being, it's great to see. Like you said, the starters were you know having having their laugh, having the jolly day for the third quarter. That's what you hope. That's what you would hope for. And I don't know that I agree so much that that game was a bad look for Gus, for Bo to be that comfortable in his first game yeah. in the post-Gus era. I'll wait and see. Competition's going to get a lot better. Yeah. No, I'm not he, blaming he him. I'm just saying that, like, you know, all of the talk about Bo, and we did it too this offseason a little bit, is like it's all kind of like like melancholy as far as like whatever. Him coming out and just executing that offense is phenomenal. I know it's a blowout against a bad team, but it's like you love to see him look comfortable because that's what that's what that's how Auburn's gonna succeed, you know? Sixty point efforts. Yeah. Don't take those for granted. Oh yeah. I don't I don't think they will. Speaking of that, how about Kevin Kelly's team putting up eighty four? Presbyterian. Friend oh, of the show. Yeah. Kevin Friend Kelly. of the program, Kevin Kelly. AKA yeah. the coach who never punts. Quarterback had ten touchdowns. They never punted. 
stunning. I know. And I, I saw some people uh, that got my mentions were like, it was an NAIA team and they lit up 40 plus points. What is Whatever. wrong with people, bro? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, 84 point. Yeah, well, actually, I, do it in the SEC, Paul. Who cares? This guy's having points, fun. points, man. Yeah, exactly. Losing. Win a football game. Florida Atlantic and Florida, the one thing I liked, I like watching Anthony Richardson run, man. Mm -hmm. That dude, AR-15, he looked the part, and Florida fans felt it. Guy had a little bit of Dak Prescott in him, and watching him come in kind of side-by-side side with Emory Jones, boy, I'll tell you what, there's some Florida fans who are very much moving on from the Emory Jones era already. Whether that's fair or not, I, 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 I look at what Anthony Richardson did, albeit against lesser competition against FAU, and they said, give me more of that. Because he's running over dudes, he's hurdling dudes, he's making better reads. Emory Jones did not have a particularly good day. And there's probably three, three to four mistakes that he made over the course of the game where he's just like, oh, I didn't think we'd see that from a year four guy. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because Emory has to do a lot more over the course of the game than Anthony Richardson was, but his processing isn't quite there yet. He had a terrible interception in the red zone, and then another time, he's got all day to throw, he scans to his right, and he delivers it just too late, it's an interception. It wasn't a good first career start. And he said after the game that he wasn't gonna go to bed, he was gonna watch the film before he did that. That'll show him. Yeah. Well, you know what, I credit, I credit him because, I credit him because that's that's a moment where you can kind of go into your own shell and you could be like, oh, you know, you're being too critical of me. It's you guys just love to be critical of Florida quarterbacks or whatever. And he he took accountability. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're a Florida fan, you should be at least encouraged by that, even if you were more encouraged by Anthony Richardson in week one. I'm not saying start Anthony Richardson right now. It was one, it was one game. I think better days are ahead for Emory. And they should be against a terrible USF team. Oh yeah, South, South Florida. Talk about sorry. <laughs> South Florida. South Florida is sorry. If he struggles there, and if you're Dan Mullen, what do you do? That's where it gets interesting. The good news is that with Mullen, Richardson is still going to get his looks. Mm -hmm. He's going to play him for a series here or there, first half. But that standard is so high to play the position of Florida. And look, part of this is. The offense is just going to look diff so much different than last year with not having those big plays in the passing game. There is not a Kadarius Toney on that team. There is not a Kyle Pitts who's going to go up and catch a ball in triple coverage. There's maybe not even a Trayvon Grimes who's going to do that on the right sideline in the way that he would do that. I understand drops notwithstanding, but I, I don't think we're going to see those big chunk plays. It's going to be some of these more longer, you know, these longer drives, and it's going to be a little bit more vintage Mullen, Malik Davis, Damian Pierce getting involved. Those guys look great in the opener. If you're a Florida fan and if you're trying to have a positive that isn't Anthony Richardson related, it's the offensive line in the ground game looked much better. You would hope it would against FAU. The grass is always greener. It's always greener, especially with Florida for whatever reason. <laughs> Will, did you get a chance to see some of these Anthony Richardson clips? Because yeah, dude, so they're incredible. I told you about uh, my neighbors, like from his high school or whatever, he's literally been hyping him up. And that's like Florida's like, dude, like all Florida fans love him. And it's so excited, like so excited to see him get going because like, I know I'm about to actually go like knock on my neighbor's door and be like, you see a boy? Because like they get so, I haven't seen a, a player get Florida fans as excited. Obviously last year, like there was a very excited offense and stuff, but Richardson's a dude that's just like, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It's just it, he's like a he's like a hidden gem. He's like a secret that they like can't wait to share with the rest of the world. If that makes sense. 
Chris Storing's been talking him up a lot. A lot. He came on this podcast and said, look, everybody assumes that Emory's going to be the guy moving forward. Do not underestimate what Anthony Richardson is capable of. If there were people who were, myself included, you saw what he did in his, in, in his first game of 2021 and thought, man, that, uh, that might translate pretty well in this offense. Mm-hmm. Eastern Illinois, South Carolina. One thing I liked. Come on, we know what it is. It's Zeb Nolan TD passes. Dude looked pretty good. He looked pretty good. Four touchdown passes for the former grad assistant. All when they were in super close. It wasn't like he was throwing 50-yard bombs or anything like that. But he did throw more than I thought he was going to. It was like 13 to 22, I think the final line was. Nolan had more touchdown passes than Sam Howell, Spencer Rattler, De'Ara King, DJ Uyunglele, and JT Daniels combined. Man. Of course. Just like we thought, bro. We're we're geniuses yet again. (laughs) So let's, whatever Heisman odds are out there, Zeb Nolan's got to be way ahead. Yeah, Eastern Illinois is pretty bad. Him and Will Levis. Pretty bad. Yeah. Zeb Nolan, Will Levis for Heisman. I don't know. It's got to be one or the other, right, at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll say this. He saved Shane Beamer from some embarrassment. Because if that if that had gone south, mm-hmm. or if they're trying to to pull out a win late in the fourth quarter, that would have been that would have been a really rough start. Imagine if he was like that Broncos receiver who played quarterback last year when the entire quarterback room got COVID, yep. or they they had contact tracing as well. That that would have been a really tough way to start. And instead, you you feel good about the move that you made to be able to start this kid, who clearly was the best option. You might get Luke Doty back next week. You get a fun little story, and everyone else stepped up in typical Beamer fashion. You get two block punts. Beamer ball was there. Oh yeah, it was out in the forefront. Also, if you are listening to this and you did not see much of South Carolina's game, there's a ton going on Saturday night. Mm. Go watch the video of Jordan Birch's pick six. Oh my lord. The former five-star recruit, the defensive lineman, he used to play running back at 270 pounds. Oh, buddy. Say less. And this, this, <laughs> this pick six where he just leaps and then he's gone. And it's zero to 60 just like that. Oof. I want to see more situations like that with Jordan Birch where I'm not saying I, he needs to get reps at tight end. But I do kind of want to see him with the ball in his hands because it was scary. Seriously, go watch that clip right now if you don't know what I'm talking about. Or just go watch more Zeb Nolan touchdown passes. Hopefully they get Luke Doty back next week, though. And we get to a real accurate feel for what South Carolina is going to be. Interesting test um, next week with East Carolina. Kent State, Texas A&M. One thing I liked, more Devon A. Chain. He is so, so fast. That 63-yard touchdown run that he had, I think would have been a 15-yard gain for the vast majority of college football running backs. Mm -hmm. And he has this different gear. It was very reminiscent of his run in the Orange Bowl, I thought, where you you realize there's nobody on the field that can catch up with him, and he just runs away from everybody. He had the same amount of carries that he had in the Orange Bowl as well. He and uh, Isaiah Spiller both hit the century mark in this one. A&M kind of needed that. And this game was 13-3 to midway through the third quarter. 
it was it was close, and it wasn't Kent State number one offense in college football in 2020. <laughs> Shout out, it Kent State number one offense. At least you can say you learned that. <laughs> uh, Dustin Crum, not Victor Crum, struggled in this game. Did not have his best moments. Leon O'Neill interception kind of changed the game, or he has the pick six, makes it a 20 to three game. A change is so much fun, and I think two things are true at the same time. One is that Haynes King is going to rely on this ground game a lot to be able to sustain some of these drives. I think there were similarities between Haynes King and Emory Jones with the way that they went through their progressions. King had the more prolific day, but some of the decisions you just kind of are like, eh, that's not great. And again, first career start, so take it with a grain of salt. But the other thing that can be true at the same time, with Devon A. Chain and Caleb Chapman back, I think A&M has so much more big playability and we never really got to see those two guys kind of be on the field at the same time. And one's a running back, one's a receiver. So it's not something that you really think about very much. But having a home run play threat in the passing game and having one in the running game is really important. If AM is going to be different, if AM is going to take that next step, that's what you need to have. Very intriguing matchup for AM in Denver against Colorado next week. I think we see a ton of Devon A. Chain again. I don't think anybody on Colorado is going to be able to keep up with him. Dude is so fast and so fun. Give me all the Devon A. Chain. All right. The one we've all been waiting for. East Tennessee State against Vandy. One thing I loved. <laughs> I love that there were six, I think, other SEC football games that I could watch instead of this one. I think Vandy might finish the year winless again. Man. That play with Ken Seals was so bad. He dropped back to pass, and he winds up, ball slips out of the back of his hand. And it was like one of those old videos that you would see of the ain'ts back in the day. <laughs> I was having Sorry. a nice time over here. Just looking at the box shot. score. <laughs> that's a cheap shot. But that's what it felt like. How you're not, you not wrong. Score? I mean, you didn't have to say it, but you're <laughs> they didn't score a touchdown against East Tennessee State. Yeah. Forget the fact that no SEC team has lost to an FCS foe since 2015. East Tennessee State didn't have a program for 12 years in the 21st century. They shut it down from 2003 to 2015. They didn't have a program. The funniest thing, and again, I'm not trying to say this to poke fun Vandy fans. I really do feel bad for you. If you want to get on any other bandwagon for a year, two years, however long this the whole thing takes, two decades, whatever, I'm not going to blame you. Vandy tweeted out the final score graphic. Oh, no. The words, eyes ahead. God bless the PR person who had to craft that tweet. You're sitting there, if you have to do that, just sweating bullets in the press box the entire time. You're like, what am I going to do? What, what do you do? Because I thought about how I would craft a post-game tweet if something like that happened. Because you can't do thought hard. Get them next time. <laughs> Did our You're gonna best. You're going to get even more comments. Did our best. And I actually respect them more that they'll actually put that out there as opposed to the other teams. And you know who you are. when your <laughs> Cowards. Team, I'll call your yeah. name right here on these airways. Oh, cowards. Your team is down by 30, and then you just... Ghost radio silent on social media yep. you, you go radio silent like all right thanks we, we get it but come on at least at least have a little something something really bad debut for for clark lee i don't know how they won a game that game against uconn might be the worst game against fbs teams in all of college football you know what we need this would be really good 
Vandy's not going to be on board for this because they're all about the academics, of course, as we know. But maybe it's the second week in December. So right before bowl season starts. Mm-hmm. And we do a bottom four tournament. We like relegate them? Yes. <laughs> that is exactly what we do. We get Vandy, Yukon, Akron, Louisiana, Monroe, maybe Bowling Green, depending on how the year shakes out. But they did have that one good second quarter against Tennessee. So that might keep them exempt from this. But... And they also covered the spread. So you know what? Bowling Green's not part of this. This is all about Vandy, UConn, Akron, and Louisiana Monroe. Bottom four tournament. Whoever loses both games has to move down to FCS. Tell me you wouldn't watch that. I would love that so much, to be honest. It's like, I, I, I love that idea. We're, more ridiculous ideas are being talked about. Let's just, let's just put it that way. If there are no rules anymore in college football, and if we can just align whatever way we want, and if the Alliance can do all this crap, and you know what? We can have a bottom four tournament. Let's get Ryan McGee. Ryan McGee's all about that. He's got the weekly comments. It's bottom 10 that he does, I believe, on ESPN.com. Mm -hmm. He could be on the sideline reporting for these games. It'd be fantastic. I, I think that's the way that we make these these teams more entertaining because, yikes! And that day we just dump mayonnaise on them because apparently, dude, the death grip that the mayonnaise industry had on college football, I was not aware. I, it really went zero to a hundred because I knew there was a Duke's mayonnaise bowl, but there was suddenly mayonnaise everywhere last weekend. <laughs> the the guy who dumped all that mayonnaise by himself at the it was the Duke's Mayo Classic game in, in Charlotte with Georgia and Clemson. Yeah. So instead of chick-fil-a in atlanta you get mayo in charlotte and you get the guy who dumped all that mayo all over himself and you just wonder yourself why why at what point in life do you feel compelled to get that thick in some mayo on tv there's, there's nothing just on national tv that is your moment you're going to be on national tv for five seconds of your life probably and you think to yourself you know what now would be a really good time to dump a large amount of mail on myself. <laughs> Whatever you do in your personal time, son, that's up to you. But, you know, you just got to wonder about that guy's family. God forbid his girlfriend or whatever. It's like, oh, there's... Oh. <laughs> yeah. I had to watch that. That just happened to all of us. We, we, we didn't that. consent to that. I feel like that we're, yeah. it's a gray line because that was that was uncomfortable. <laughs> I, I'm not going to take my eyes away from college game day on a Saturday. So, I, yes, I have to watch that. It's just in front of me. <laughs> Uh, all right, so Monday night, Lane Kiffin is not going to be there on the sidelines for Ole Miss, as we found out on Saturday morning because he tested positive for COVID ahead of the opener against Louisville. This is a huge game for Jeff Levy's career. I know that's kind of lost in the shuffle of this whole deal, but that's also kind of why it doesn't really change how I feel about Ole Miss. Very big Jeff Levy guy. Mm -hmm. And the so the over-under that I have uh, for this game with Kiffin out is Kiffin interviews or video cut-ins on air. They've got that whole setup taken care of. He was doing, he was doing, he did like a little two minute spot on college game day. They had all of that ready to go. I don't know how they, they, they're able to do that when he tests positive for COVID or how, how that whole, whole thing works because it's not like Lane's just sitting there setting all that up, but whatever, my brain has gone down that rabbit hole too many times. I think Ole Miss puts up a ton of points in this game still, even without Kiffin. And it ends up being what we would call, and I, I know I said this with Jim Cheney last year. I said it with him the year before that. A Jeff Levy flex game. I think we get that in the opener. Louisville was excellent against the pass in 2022. Teams only completed 54% of their passes against them. But Ole Miss just has too much balance. And I want to see a lot of Snoop Connor in this game. Jerry Neely is going to be more involved in the passing game, so you got to get Snoop Connor involved in the backfield. I think Ole Miss wins something like 45-31. to 31. 
And if you bet the under on this game, you just don't like fun. You just don't like fun. Who bets the under on an Ole Miss game? What? Gross. <laughs> I, the look of disgust is just. I'm work. I'm also workshopping. Um, I don't know if I've said this on these airwaves, but 2020 Ole Miss was tequila. Mm -hmm. 2021 Ole Miss, I think, is Kahlua. Okay. They're the they're the more mature. They're the after dinner drink. You know, you mix it, get a little bit of milk in there. You know, it's a little bit calmer. It's not quite crazy. It's not you know going out and doing karaoke. It's not you know streaking or something like that at three in the morning. It's not waking up with a wicked hangover. It's a little calmer after dinner drink. You relax, it's composed, it's what adults do. Actually, I don't really have Kahlua, but once a year, maybe? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Are you a big Kahlua guy? I am. Is, Kahlua isn't what's in a white Russian, right? I believe so. I believe That's so. I'm imagining. Check me on that. But yeah, no, very, very big relaxing like, uh, like after dinner drink kind of guy. Like it makes you feel real classy. It does. And I think that's what Ole Miss will be in 2021. Maybe not quite as crazy. And if the defense can get a few stops, that would confirm a little bit of that. So Ole Miss, Kahlua, 2021, start off with an opening win. I think that happens. All right, let's close with it might mean too much. I took a year off of doing this. Just because 2020 was pretty heavy and I didn't really feel totally right about deciding what means too much to people and it's probably use. smart honestly yeah i just thought you know what i don't really want to get into that it's it's a very sensitive time right now in our world i don't really want to to ruffle any any feathers unnecessarily so but i'm gonna bring it back and i'll tread lightly here with the first one because i am admitting that i don't know the full context to this oh boy and i am also saying at the same time that there's nothing wrong with tears in sports i cried after the cubs won it all in 2016 I I'll cried last that. night. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> anyway. If you're moved to tears by a moment, that's fine. Whatever. But with 444 left on Saturday night, Clemson, Georgia, Georgia had just stopped Clemson on fourth down, and it's 10 to 3. Georgia's winning. The camera panned to this Georgia fan, and I'm really bad with ages now. I, I don't. I think he was anywhere from like college kid, maybe early 20s, mid 20s, I don't know. We see him in tears. He's not like a kid kid. He's, he's like old enough to like understand emotions and, and whatnot. So it, if it's like a six year old, I'm not right. like yeah, yeah, yeah. calling this kid Still out. Still figuring it out, but not like mortgage level yet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Could have a house, we just don't even know. We see this guy in tears and he's hugging what I'm guessing is his dad. Maybe it was a stranger. I, again, I don't have context here. Also of note, in this, somebody got a screenshot of this. There's a middle-aged couple behind them just kissing? Weird moment to do that. The people that kiss after they get a strike in bowling or something like that, it felt very similar to that. Is that a thing? I've never heard of that. That's, that's apparently a thing. Once you join a bowling league, you realize people do some weird stuff. Fair. The tears were a lot. If it was a national championship, I'd totally get it. I'm not calling anybody out for that. But it's game one, and there were still almost five minutes left on the clock. And this guy was right. Clemson didn't get the ball back. But I don't know. That was a lot of emotion for a defensive stop. If there is nothing else going on there, at least, and maybe there is. I tweeted the pick out if you haven't seen this. Maybe the people who were in that are listening to this right now, and they can give us an explanation. If that's you, email me, C-O-G-A-R-A, at SaturdayDownSouth.com. 
love to talk to you, get to the bottom of this and figure this out. Because I am not the only person who watched this moment and thought, I don't know that tears are the right emotion right now or the most normal reaction to have to a big time defensive stop. It was almost like when you're at the movies and there's a funny part, but the person next to you is belly laughing for a full minute and you go from being like, hey, like, take it easy guy, like calm down. <laughs> to then by the end of it, while this person is still laughing, you're thinking to yourself, maybe there, there's gotta be a backstory here. There's gotta be more to it that I just don't know because that's not a normal reaction, right? And that's sort of what this this felt like. Will, did you see this this image? I'm looking at your Twitter right now. The the lad, yeah, the, the, the dude's embracing and then the guy behind that's just getting his like shirt ripped off. There's, yeah, there's- A lot going on. Oh goodness. And then there's the guy back who's like, all right, all right, all right. Like just go to Connor's Twitter, the picture's up there. It's hard for me to explain it to you, but you you will want to see it. Wow, this is a ton, man. You, you again, love to see it. Uh, for, for, for happy for Georgia yeah, just fans. so pumped for happy Georgia for fans. Yeah. But this, this was, uh, for now it's, it might mean too much until at least we get to the bottom of this. We're going to find out too, that like the guy who made the tackle, like donated him a kidney or something like that. And watching him in that moment, just, I, I don't know. There's probably, <laughs> we're going to find out something ridiculous like that. It's going to be like, wow, I can't believe you made fun of that. Whatever. It might mean too much is back with a vengeance. If you have not leave us a five-star review, like, subscribe, go subscribe to our newsletter, go subscribe to College Football Uncensored, go subscribe to Saturday Lives Forever, wherever you get your podcast. Got so much great podcast content coming up this year via Saturday Down South. We have also so much week one recap stuff on SaturdayDownSouth.com right now. Like I always say, if you wanna just waste a half hour, I know the place for you, seriously. You will have no shortage of entertainment, for your entire, you know, whether you're listening to this Sunday or Monday, you're enjoying this on Labor Day weekend, whatever the case, go do that right now. Go join the Facebook group, hear your name read on air with Figuring It Out or with Bold and Brash. Thanks guys, talk soon.